0: U.S. manufacturers were supposed to be bringing production back to the United States, but it doesn't appear to be happening. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. When it comes to the making of many products sold in the U.S., offshoring has been the prevailing trend over much of the last few decades. But all that was supposed to change, what with rising wages in China, the cost and uncertainties associated with maintaining long supply lines, and growing pressure on American companies to make their products at home. All well and good, except that the latest reshoring index from A.T. Kearney reports record imports from traditional offshoring countries in 2017. What's more, the growth of imports from low-cost countries has outpaced the relative growth of U.S. manufacturing output in four of the past five years. So what's happening? Why hasn't reshoring become a significant trend? And what are the real reasons behind lost American manufacturing jobs? We get answers today from Patrick Vandenbosch, partner with A.T. Carney. He delves into the numbers to help us separate hype from reality. So, is major reshoring still a possibility for the future? And what would have to happen in order to make that a reality? Here is my conversation with Patrick Vandenbosch. Patrick VandenBosch, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, according to the latest AT Kearney Reshoring Index, rather surprising result. It demonstrates that there were record imports from traditional offshoring countries in 2017. First of all, is that indeed the case? That is, yes. (laughs) Did that come as a surprise, or did you already kind of know that that was the case before you undertook this latest version of the index?
1: It was a little bit of a surprise because with all the talk of Made in America and bringing jobs back, we really thought that this time around we would see a bit of a reversal. We had seen a glimmer of hope when we did this index in 2016. It was just slightly starting to tilt to the positive, so we were hopeful. But unfortunately, what we saw this time around is that the imports of the manufacturing goods from the 14 countries that you would typically associate with offshoring grew actually by 8% in 2017. So they're now at an all-time high of about 55 billion. And that's the largest one-year increase we've seen since the economic recovery of 2011. And by the way, by comparison, US domestic manufacturing output only grew 5.6%. So it's growing as we all feel, right? There's a good economy, manufacturing jobs are up, but the imports are growing faster.
0: You say 14 countries that would be defined as offshoring countries. Also, what industries? Is it pretty much a broad-based selection of industries that you looked at?
1: Yes, we look at manufactured products only, so no oil or anything like that or or agricultural products. But it is across industries, yes. Maybe I should take a little bit of time here to explain what our reshoring index actually is and how it's calculated because I think it'll allow me to put a couple of things a little bit more into perspective. When we first launched this index we saw a lot of publicized evidence for reshoring that was largely anecdotal. You'd see and hear articles about high-profile cases, and there's a lot of, we plan to do X, and over the next five years, we'll do Y. So it seemed like was a lot of wishful thinking, a lot of political agendas at work, but we really didn't feel that was based on hard facts. So we decided to do just that. And rather than base ourselves off of surveys of executives, we really wanted to separate the hype from the reality. And we came up with this rather elegant way of putting some sort of a numerical on reshoring. So what we do is we look at the import of manufacturing goods from these 14 Asian countries. So these are the the China's, Taiwan, Malaysia, India, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Hong Kong, Sri Lanka, and Cambodia. So it's a pretty comprehensive list. And then we compare that versus the U.S. domestic gross output of manufacturing goods, in other words, what's made here. And we make it dimensionless so that we factor out the effect of the overall strength of the economy, because obviously if the economy goes up and demand goes up, then both of these will go up, right? So we make it dimensionless, and we look at what we call the manufacturing import ratio, the ratio of that import from these offshore countries to the U.S. domestic gross output. And then we look at the year-over-year change, and that gives us an indication of whether we're making more stuff here versus we continue to import a lot more in these offshoring countries.
0: First year you did it was when?
1: The first time we did it was 2014. That's when we actually started putting the reshoring index in the press. We had been tracking some things sort of a little bit more anecdotally ourselves up until then, since 2011. But that was the first time we put the reshoring index out there.
0: And each of those subsequent years, have you seen a steady increase in the amount of offshore manufacturing for each index?
1: Yes, we even back-calculated it a few years. And so what we saw was between 2011 and now, there's only been two years where it's slightly dipped into the positive. And all the other years, we've seen basically faster growth in import than we've seen a growth in domestic gross output. So for instance, this last year, we are now seeing that what we call our reshoring index has been dropping 27 basis points. So so what that really means is that in 2016, for every $1 of U.S. domestic manufacturing output, there was roughly 12.2 cents in 2016 that was imported from those offshoring countries. Now, that same ratio says that it's 12.5 cents. So it's gone up by 27 cents, and that's what those basis points translate into. And by the way, by comparison, if you go back to 2011, we're almost $2 more. So that reshoring wave that was supposed to start back in 2011 really never took off. And in fact, if anything else, we continue to see more and more product coming from those offshoring countries.
0: Okay, then. The obvious question is why? Let's talk about all the factors that go into this from your perspective. What are some of the main factors that you think lead to the fact that there has not been this resurgence of uh, U.S. reshoring?
1: It's a bit of a demand and supply story, if you will. I'd say, if you look at just, first of all, the amount of import that we've been seeing from offshore countries, we've seen a pretty decent economy. Consumers have been in a spending mood. If you look at things like the economic optimism index, that's really been on a tear, People look at the personal financial outlook, the six-month economic outlook, and then what they call confidence in federal economic policies, and all these things have been trending up since last year. So people have been buying, but at the same time, their wages really haven't been moving up that much, so people are still looking for a bargain. And unfortunately, that means that you're buying products that are cheaper because they've been made offshore. So that's one of the indicators or one of the reasons, if you will. And then on the supply side, if you look at U.S. companies, even the ones that have reshored themselves in in the past few years, they've really been reluctant to invest too much. So when we looked at this in 2015, we noticed that about 70% of the companies that did some reshoring actually brought it back in existing facilities. So they preferred to de-mothball equipment versus investing new capital equipment. Now we're seeing a little bit of an increase since the second half of last year in capital goods investment, but that didn't come online quickly enough to make a difference in the 2017 numbers. So there's a bit of a supply shortage as well. And by the way, if you look at that growth in imports, it's not just from more manufacturing moving offshore. That happened. 10, 15 years ago. It's just that there's a heck of a lot of capacity right now. And companies that have the relationships or the joint ventures or the plants there are just shipping more volume to the U.S. from those existing operations because it's easier to ramp up there and follow the upward trend in demand. So that's why you see a lot of increasing imports. And then why aren't people making more here? Well, to be honest, that labor cost gap is still significant. Even after several years of 10 to 20% annual labor cost increase in China, other Asian countries have stepped up, Vietnam, Cambodia, the Philippines. We've seen imports from them increase quite a bit because labor costs are actually there more comparable to what they were several years ago in China before that country had its annual labor cost increase. So that means that any product with labor-intensive manufacturing processes is quite frankly still more economical to produce in low-cost countries, whether that's China or the other ones. You can then still ship it back at a reasonable price because ocean freight costs have remained manageable. And the only way you really can sort of start to make up for that cost differential is if you're doing significant automation. But as I mentioned, that requires hefty capital, and we've not really seen that yet
0: with respect to transfers to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the like. We were told a few years ago that that wasn't likely to happen to, with, to any great degree because there's no way that those smaller countries could scale up their manufacturing operations anywhere near to the level of that of china where you'd have foxconn in china with tens of thousands of employees these massive manufacturing centers no way they could do that in southeast asia and that doesn't seem to have been an issue there are manufacturing operations popping up in southeast asia and doing just fine right
1: yeah and i think there's an industry component to that bob so in some industries the ecosystem of suppliers is critical electronics is a really good example of that And yes, that is very difficult to replicate in Vietnam, Cambodia, Philippines, or whatever. But a lot of the textile and apparel, a lot of the stuff that is really, really very manual, that has actually moved over there without much of a problem. Again, we're looking at the totality of the imports. And so we've seen some stuff move from China over to Vietnam, Cambodia, Philippines, as I said, in textiles and the like. Uh, But it's not coming back here.
0: Now, what is coming back here? Is it coming back here with people, or is it coming back here with machines? In other words, there's an opinion out there saying that the biggest culprit in lost American manufacturing jobs wasn't even offshoring in the first place, or at least recently. It's been automation. How do you feel about that?
1: Right. Definitely, we see a bit of a mixed bag there. Like I said, when we looked at this in 2015, companies that reshored weren't really investing a lot in new equipment. They just brought old stuff, old equipment back online. And in some cases, there's even publicized cases out there where they had to uh, pull people out of retirement because there was nobody available to operate those pieces of equipment anymore. More recently, the last two years, I'd say there is a little bit more of an appetite for investment, and that investment is in automation. And so I think that's a trend that we're going to see continue. Regardless, though, you're still going to need labor. It's going to be maybe different labor that you need than you needed in the past to now operate these more automated lines, but you're going to need skilled labor. And I think that's, Probably sort of the biggest challenge right now, there just aren't enough people, even if we were to be able to scale up and everybody, every company wanted to come back, there just aren't enough people who can do the kind of work that's required.
0: Uh, Interesting. With unemployment being as low as it is, yeah, the idea that there just aren't enough bodies to to fill that. There's also the idea, I think the report refers in some way to the so-called sunk cost theory, does it not? In other words, that these companies, these manufacturing offshore operations are saying they put so much investment and time into the creation of these manufacturing operations, complete with, as you say, the whole supplier environment surrounding them, that they're reluctant. It would take a lot for them to want to really make a major move to the United States. Is that also an issue, philosophically or psychologically?
1: Yes, definitely an issue. And in fact, we talked about electronics briefly. That definitely is an industry where ecosystem is critical. Now, back in 2015, we did see electronics increase its U.S. domestic manufacturing output relative to imports a little bit. And as a result, When we looked at the reshoring index in 2016 for that industry, we saw that the electronics imports from China had declined by more than 7 billion. But then we looked back at 2017, and we're seeing a reversal of that. So I think what happened there is that there was just not a big enough ecosystem in place in the U.S. just yet. That's big enough to support the increased volumes of that industry. Mind you, this this was very, very holistically dismantled back when everything was moved over 10, 15 years ago to China, right? Mm-hmm. Now, for that industry, there's another element at work, too, though, and that's the, the tightening global capacity. We're seeing some substantial growth in electronic subcomponent demand for mobile industrial automotive and increasingly all this Internet of Things stuff that is driven by industry 4.0 and digital manufacturing and so on and so on. So that's consumed excess capacity at those major original component manufacturers. And they've been very cautious of expansion. They've had pretty slim margins. There could always be a downturn in demand around the corner. And it also, of course, in that industry requires quite a bit of investment and capital. So what they've been doing is they've been going in what's called allocation mode. That means that they basically look at their large strategic customers. They move them to the front of the waiting line for those com- constraints of components and then provide them with service. And if you're at the back of the line, you're out of luck. So electronics manufacturers are a bit wary of now completely rewiring their overall supply chain. And of course, they also then have to change their suppliers because they may find themselves at the back of the line with those new suppliers.
0: The other argument we heard a few years ago as to why we were about to see a surge of reshoring to the United States was this concept that companies were for the first time looking at their operations from the standpoint of total landed costs. And as such, they were yeah. suddenly realizing all the concomitant expenses that come with extensive offshoring, the supply chain, the long lead times, the long distances and time getting stuff, and also the inability to respond quickly to changes in the market because your factories are so far away. That, too, (laughs) all of a sudden doesn't seem to have been a big factor. What's going on there?
1: Yeah. Again, it's a factor in some industries more than in others, right? You've probably seen or heard that, strangely, apparel was one of the industries where we saw some product being reshored. Now, that's something where you would figure, hmm, that's a lot of manual labor. Why on earth would that come back? Well, exactly the points you were just making about supply chain were triggering that move. Companies were seeing that if they had to order the next batch of clothing, 6 to 8 months ahead and then it was on the ocean for a number of uh, weeks by the time it got here the fashion wave was over and they got stuck with a whole bunch of inventory right so for industries like that that have started to look at their total supply chain costs yeah they've made some changes now at the end of the day it still then results in a higher cost for the product so we've seen that happen with some of the more fashionable, higher-priced apparel. We've not seen that happen with the bland white T-shirts you find at the Walmarts of the world.
0: One of the points or the reasons behind the imposition of extensive tariffs by the Trump administration was that it was supposed to spark growth in U.S. manufacturing. Now, it hasn't been that long since these tariffs have been imposed, Will they have an impact on the reshoring decision or not? Is it just a question that it hasn't been long enough for that to figure into the numbers, or do you feel like it won't have that much of an impact in any case?
1: It's too early to tell, to be honest, Bob. Manufacturing decisions around where I put steel in the ground are typically three to five years at a very minimum, most even longer than that. So this will very much depend on how long people think these import tariffs are going to stay into effect. And that's, of course, in today's world, very difficult to predict. The negotiations with China have reopened again. Even for NAFTA, there's talk of a U.S.-Mexico deal separate from Canada. So there's a lot of moving pieces. It's also not every single product that's being targeted, right? So that's a factor as well. I think if I look at what's going on right now and hear what my clients are thinking about, if anything... I think this will attract even more foreign direct investment. And that's not reshoring, by the way. Uh, And I want to point that out because I've seen a lot of reports that confuse foreign direct investment, which is basically non-U.S. companies seeing a market opportunity to sell their products here in our domestic market and therefore want to put a footprint down versus reshoring, which are American companies who just basically think that from a total cost perspective, it's better to put product back here in the u.s right Mm -hmm. so two very different economic dynamics but i think that this could attract more fdi it's already at a record high so in two thousand seventeen the total what they call the fdi position in the united states is now up to above four trillion it went up by two hundred sixty billion from two thousand sixteen and manufacturing makes up nearly forty percent of that increase i do think that foreign companies are going to say look this is probably if anything a nudge For us to put our foot down in the U.S. market with our own operations, even if it were to result in more companies looking at reshoring, the skills availability issue will come even more into the spotlight. I honestly don't think that long term, this is going to change a tremendous amount. 2017 and the roaring first half start of 2018 are definitely providing some optimism for U.S. manufacturing, but it's not from reshoring. It's from FDI and a bunch of other factors.
0: What else has to happen for there to be meaningful change with regard to actual reshoring of U.S. manufacturing? Kind of paint me a scenario, the factors that would go into us seeing some real change.
1: There's a couple of things that I would say are positive. We're still expecting a pickup in second quarter economic growth, mostly driven by consumer purchases, They're expected partly because of that $1.5 tax cut that the uh, Trump administration signed into law at the end of 2017. That means more demand. It makes maybe sense for a lot of companies to start making more product closer to the demand. At the same time, as I mentioned earlier, we are seeing business spending going up a little bit. It's projected to even get a further boost from lower corporate taxes and other tax law changes like, for instance, the new law that was put in place to allow U.S.-based multinationals to bring back billions of dollars that they moved offshore if they pay a one-time tax over an eight-year period. So that should give them some cash in the pocket to build U.S. factories here instead of Continuing to supply from abroad and create some new jobs. I can't tell you that we've seen that happen in a big way. There is definitely some activity now around new factories, but they're as much about foreign companies, non U.S. companies, as they are by U.S. companies. So that's two elements, back to that demand and supply distinction I made earlier. There are some other things, though. Supply chains overall could become a lot more fickle. Ocean freight costs, like I said, they're still manageable, but they could go up. We saw a few years ago, Hanjin Shippings bankruptcy that really just drove a spike into the cost. That seems to have stabilized, but oil prices are now gradually starting to creep upward again. So we could see an increase there that makes it less economical to bring stuff back from as far as the Orient. So all sorts of disruptions, weather, social unrest. Remember the strikes in the West Coast ports a few years ago, labor issues. So those things could also Get people a little bit more nervous about having product made as far away from what is still a, a growing domestic market. And that cost of capital could go up. And that could push companies to work with less inventory. And the apparel example I gave earlier definitely is already an example where that happened. That labor issue, <laughs> that won't go away anytime soon. The overstimulated economy, jobless rate, that's at the lowest it's been in more than a decade. I don't think that spells a great amount of success.
0: Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. We can never predict. But in the meantime, uh, Patrick Bosch, I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand what's going on out there as reflected by the latest AT Kearney Reshoring Index, to which we will uh, link in the show notes to this episode. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: My pleasure, Bob. This was great fun.
0: That was my conversation with Patrick Vandenbosch of A.T. Kearney, explaining why U.S. manufacturers are not bringing large volumes of production back to the U.S. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming and downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain.